This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. My guest in the studio today is Richard Bouch, who is Professor of Humanities at St. Edward's University here in Austin, where he focuses on Israelite religion during the Persian period. And today we're going to be talking about a new theory on the formation of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Welcome to the studio. Thank you so much. Your current work is revising what is known as the Documentary Hypothesis, which is concerns how the Pentateuch was written. Can you explain what the Documentary Hypothesis was and maybe talk a little bit about what some of the issues scholars have identified with it are? Certainly, and let me provide some background first. Going back into antiquity, actually, we as scholars now can see the importance given to the figure of Moses as those first five books of the Bible were finally edited consolidated as a collection of five books. The identity of Moses was part and parcel of that collection when it was created. Subsequently, in different religious traditions, uh, the idea of mosaic authorship of the entire Pentateuch was extended, really across generations. And uh, for scholars and lay people alike, the idea of Moses having written all of the Pentateuch was fairly widespread. Although initially, uh, readers were able to see certain flaws in this idea. There were points at which, for example, Moses said, Moses is the most humble of men, yet how could he have really written that if he were the most humble of men? Right. As a result, uh, scholars for, as I said, a period of time were sort of wondering about mosaic authorship. And then finally, with the Enlightenment, the um, scholarship in Europe especially developed an alternative way of understanding the authorship of the Pentateuch in terms of these distinct sources. And so uh, scholars, especially in Germany, designated four distinct sources in Israelite history who contributed major parts to the first five books of the Bible. And these are designated by letters are the J source, the E source, the D source, and the P source. Now, what's the issue with the four-source theory? I mean, it had incredible longevity. It really came to fore in the 19th century. It really held sway for most of the 20th century as well. What is the issue with it? Well, I see it this way. Essentially, uh, it became a situation where the model, the hypothesis of four sources, was driving the research. And so what we would have is scholars, eminent scholars, working with this model, but always in terms of sources, and sometimes even positing additional sources uh, to deal with new data. The great Otto Eisfeld, a German scholar of the early 20th century, uh, he created an L source, for example. So we had almost a proliferation of sources. So the model was driving the research rather than the data driving the research. And that ultimately proved to be a real difficulty. I have an analogy. Imagine, if you will, in molecular biology, when Watson and Crick come out with their great discovery, uh, the double helix, DNA. Right. What if what they had published was the quadruple helix? What if they had identified four strands that really contained every bit of important information having to do with DNA and molecular biology. And subsequently, for a couple decades at least, scholars all worked, scientists all worked with this idea of four strands. But eventually, 
what would happen through scientific method, if nothing else, is people would look and say, wait a minute, the model just doesn't support that. When we look carefully at the data again and again, there's actually only two strands. Right. We've only got a double helix here. And that other material, that other data, will continue to study it, work on it, and try and discover its relationship to those two strands. Essentially, the same thing has happened in biblical studies, especially in the last 25 years. Scholars, with the exception of of a few, have gone from a four-source theory to something rather scaled down. And at this point, two of the original sources, the P source, meaning the priestly source, and the D source, or the Deuteronomic source, primarily found in Deuteronomy, although elsewhere, those two sources remain. Those two sources now command our attention. So really what we are now looking at is a lot of work done on P and D, and subsequently, the other parts of the Pentateuch that are not P or D, we're working at ways of understanding their relationship to P and D. I would just add that for my own research and uh, that of several others, a critical point is in the 4th century, the 4th century BCE, that appears to be the point where these two separate sources, the priestly source on the one hand and the D source on the other, were uh, by redactors or editors conjoined and brought together. So at that point, I think we have sort of a critical point of formation for what we now have as the Pentateuch or the first five books of our Bible. Well, since you mentioned that historic period, was there a reason why then these sources would have been combined? What was going on that these redactors or editors would have saw a need to combine these into one source? Well, it was a a very stimulating time, and it was a time when, if we think in terms of ancient Israel, the sovereign nation ended in 587 with the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. Many of the people were taken into exile. Though they did return by the end of the 6th century, it was under Persian hegemony. And so we have a kind of nascent Jewish society in Jerusalem, as well as very lively diaspora at this point, representing Judaism. That's sort of our window on Judaism. Think about the diaspora in Babylon, for example. Also from Egypt in Elephantine, we have significant um, copies of Jewish texts as well, relating to festivals and feasts and other issues that are really Pentateuchal issues. What many believe is happening is that there is a need to sort of create a single document or a single story that embraces both the group, which is, if you can say, at the center in Jerusalem and maybe has a certain claim to at least uh, the legacies of ancient Israel, but also the groups in the diaspora, the diaspora in Babylon, the diaspora in Egypt as well. And if we read through those first five books, it is really curious to see how much of the action, though it is really about Moses bringing the people into the promised land, how much of the action takes place outside, in other lands, adjacent lands. Uh, Abraham comes from uh, Haran up in modern-day Syria. Uh, Moses is actually from uh, Egypt, is he not? So there's a way in which the diaspora is being integrated into the story, uh, a way that tells the story. It's a story of origins, really, but in a way that's inclusive, and that it's so that these different communities of Judaism, even beyond the land of Israel, uh, have a voice, have a place in there. Your current work involves the person of Ezra, who's the biblical prophet. What is his relationship to this process, or or this, I presume, is your hypothesis on the formation of the Pentateuch? Great question. So, for a long time, in what we would say earlier scholarship, the thinking was that the Pentateuch, or the Torah, 
was actually all put together, consolidated, edited, really, for a final time in the Babylonian exile in the 6th century. So it's a much earlier date than we're now proposing. The thinking was that Ezra, as a historical figure, he is born in Babylon, but he returns, or I shouldn't say return, but he brings a group of returnees to Jerusalem. And uh, among other things, he commands an entire assembly where he reads from the Torah of Moses. So that sort of indication has led many scholars to see Ezra as sort of a seminal figure in the first proclamation of the Pentateuch, okay? uh, that Ezra was the first and best window on more or less the complete Torah. And all this is happening in the 6th in the 5th century, again, much earlier than I propose. The way that I uh, kind of talk about it in a, a talk I'm giving is that uh, they have in biblical scholarship uh, the concept of the primogenitor. He's the first son. Okay? And as the first son, he is the heir. And what he will inherit is a double portion. It's the very best of what the family has. Unfortunately for the other sons, uh, their inheritance is virtually nothing. Right? So the thinking was, it's almost as if the Torah in exile okay, was this great biblical figure itself, and Ezra was the, the primogenitor. Okay? Mm-hmm. He was the first one to inherit the best, the most pristine of the revelations of God, and he proclaimed them in Jerusalem. Right? So here's how I now understand Ezra. First of all, Ezra likely made his mission in the 4th century. So the dating of Ezra has always been a little up for grabs. Uh, I think more and more scholars are now seeing him as a 4th century figure. The other thing is that the materials we have about Ezra, if we look at them carefully, and that's kind of a separate question unto itself, but if we look at them carefully, we'll see that they really do kind of reflect actually the Torah itself. Some of the things that Ezra says line up really quite well with passages in the Torah itself, in the book of Leviticus, for example. My theory is that these two works are actually synchronous, that we should think of the formation of the Torah and specifically the conjoining of the P and D sources in the fourth century as happening more or less right alongside the Ezra narrative as it's being written and completed in the fourth century in Jerusalem. So again, my analogy was that Ezra was thought of as the primogenitor, but actually Ezra and the Pentateuch are more like close siblings. Mm-hmm. They're more like twins, if you will, who you know, are both created from much of the same material, the D and the P material that forms and informs the Pentateuch is also very prominent in the Ezra materials. And so my approach now is to understand Ezra in that manner and to uh, use Ezra as a window on the formation of the Pentateuch in that way. Could we then propose that Ezra was the one who consolidated the texts, or is that either not important or not part of the story? (laughs) Well, I think there are actually some differences when we start looking carefully at specific passages. Um, There are enough differences, and critical differences too, differences in ways of thinking and ideas, that um, I would um, certainly have to at least bring other parties into the picture and uh, kind of paint a more complex picture of, you know, probably priestly and deuteronomistic editors working on the Pentateuch. Ezra um, increasingly kind of has his own contribution to make, which it matches up very well with the Pentateuch, but yet probably is distinct from the mission, if you will, of uh, redaction of the Pentateuch. Um, so I would, I would keep those two separate, to be honest. So 
Toward wrapping up, what does this sort of revised timeline or revised understanding about the way that the Pentateuch was assembled, how does this impact our understanding of what has come to be known as the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament for Christians? What new interpretations can we have of, how, of through understanding how this text was assembled? If we think of the Second Temple period as an arc, the full arc of the Second Temple period, obviously, uh, for Christians and for many Jews, the end of this time is very, very important. And uh, this is a time which uh, receives much study. Uh, there are many texts from this period which are, as I said, intensely studied both by Christian scholars, Jewish scholars as well. What I have found is that really to understand Second Temple Judaism, and let's say for Christians to understand the background of the Jesus story, it's not simply the century before Jesus, mm-hmm. as was long the approach in scholarship, with the understanding that before that we just don't know that much. Um, we don't know that much about the Persian period. We don't know much about the first couple centuries of the Second Temple. Okay? That is changing That is changing radically because we have now copious data on that, and we're coming up with some um, good understandings and interpretations of that data. For me, the impact is that we now have a much broader base of background for studying the origins of Christianity as well as Judaism late in the Second Temple period. In my own work, uh, I continually find myself working at the beginning of the Persian period, identifying an interesting theme or topic such as penitential prayer or covenant, and then tracing the trajectory of development of one of those topics or themes all the way through the later Jewish materials and the Christian texts as well. And what I find is that there's potentially a much richer understanding for those studying the later texts if their background is not simply the um, decades or century before the time of Jesus in the first century, but if we can go all the way back to the return from exile and have a really good grasp of a lot of that data. It's there. It's always been there. Uh, It's canonical. Uh, But the study of it has really taken off in the last 25 years or so, and I think that's made all the difference. Mm Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing your work with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's 15minutehistory.org. And for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15-Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.